Well, and, and the hard part is the, the you, you, you started with this, the information they're getting is a apocalyptic message. And there's, it's really hard to differentiate what that means or how they can contribute to, to the health of that ecosystem. They don't understand those things. So, so all automatically almonds are the villain, but let's not forget almonds are shelf stable. They're high in protein and, and vitamins, minerals, all these things. And there, there's, there's a nuance there that we're not talking about. Welcome to Animalia, where we cover all things conservation, climate justice, and sustainability. You've probably heard at some point in the last few years that the bees are dying or in trouble or declining. It sounds alarming, concerning, especially when you consider just how much we depend on them. As much as 45% of our entire food supply is either entirely bee dependent or heavily bee assisted when it comes to pollination. However, as you'll learn today, there's a lot more context and nuance to this headliner statement. For one, Do you know the difference between wild bees and farm bees? Or that farm bees are even a thing? That classic honeybee you know so well? Well, yeah, that is not wild or native here in the U.S. It's a species that was brought over from Europe in the 17th century and has been an agricultural species ever since here in the United States. Farmed beekeeping, or pollination services, really hit their stride post-World War II when the U.S. moves in mass into monocrop agriculture. You see, when you scale a single crop like we have in order to maximize yield and efficiency, you both weaken native pollinators via habitat loss, use of pesticides, and you increase the use of farm pollinators to make up for it. Today, pollination services rake in tens of millions of dollars every year and now far outpace the economics of honey production. And this presents a challenge. As more and more agriculture relies on farmed pollinators, they get further and further away from native ones. So what's to be done? Joining us today are Mike Briano from Harris Wolf and Matthias Veal from Beeflow. Harris Wolf is one of the top almond producers in California, which means it's also one of the top almond producers in the world since over 80% of the world's almond supply comes in California. And Matthias is a co-founder of Beeflow, a company using technology and data to foster a new kind of pollination service that mitigates health risks on farm pollinators while helping growers adopt practices to support native pollinators. Almonds are more reliant on bees than any other crop we have. So Mike is just the guy to have this discussion with. Harris Wolf is one of the leading almond producers in the area of sustainability and adopting progressive environmental practices. And he's always thinking about this issue as well on farmed versus wild pollinators. You'll come away from this episode with more knowledge on bees than you've ever had before. And the next time someone says, hey, did you know the bees are dying? You'll be able to say, yeah, sit down and let me explain to you what's actually going on here. I think the first thing to set off on the table right from the bat is... Everyone here is on Team B. Everyone, you know, I think I think both of you, obviously, Matthias, in your case, you're directly working on supporting in bees, both farm and pollinated. So your whole life is Team B at this point. And, and for Mike, you know, bees are an incredible part of your, you know, of, of, of the work you do and, and harvesting almonds. So it should be noted right from the top that 
everyone here is on Team B. I'll start with you, Matias, and just the, you know, the quick version of what you do and where you know where you're taking the company that you co-founded and, and, and why you got involved in, in the first place. Sure. Uh, my name is Matias Biel. I'm from Argentina. Three years ago, I moved to the U.S. Uh, to bring my company, B-Flow, here. Uh, I live in California, uh, in Los Angeles. And six years ago, I started working behind this new adventure called B-Flow. We're trying to change the way farming has ever thought about crop pollination. We believe pollination is much more than just dropping beehives, uh, loading them in a truck, moving them miles from one location to the other uh, to get a crop pollinated. Uh, there is much more complexity behind this biological process, which is very relevant towards how plants are reproduced. So basically, 70% of the crops in the world depend on bees pollination to turn flowers into fruits, to turn the flowers into almonds, into apples, into blueberries, avocados, cherries. And there's a lot of science uh, out there that is not being applied by agriculture. There are technologies that could enhance pollination, could enhance this completely natural process and help farmers produce more with less environmental impact. And everything we do at B-Flow is attached to that. So we're trying to help farmers uh, increase their yields by applying scientific knowledge and technologies into bees pollination um, and trying to innovate uh, in this space and do our part uh, to save the bees by doing so, taking care of restoring natural habitats, the use of different pollinators besides honeybees, and try to make something more responsible in terms of the impacts that pollination has to sustainability and on biodiversity. And if I remember correctly, your your favorite bee is the blue orchid. Is that correct? Oh, I'm in Oregon and I'm seeing so many beautiful bumblebees, so I'm starting to doubt about it. <laughs> cool. Well, we're going to talk about bumblebees in a bit as well. All right, Mike, do you want to tell us a little bit about Harris Wolf and, and what you do there? Yeah, certainly. My name is Mike Briano and appreciate you having me on here for this dialogue. With Harris Wolf Almonds, I've been here for 10 years now and We've been growing almonds since 1974 and processing since 1989. At the beginning, it was a, a means to take the, the almonds we were growing in the field and process on our own terms. And it has grown over the years from a traditional farming operation to a food ingredient company. We have seen the trends and things changing, not only with the consumer, but how our impact on the environment affects us all. And over the probably the past three to five years, we're taking a, a more serious look at our own sustainability efforts with who we buy almonds from, how we grow our own almonds and who we sell to affects the chain. So we're, our focus has now become on uh, pollinator health, as we believe we serve a big role in that, what our carbon footprint is and soil health and water. So we're we're changing what the hopefully changing the perception of the California almond farmer one one of these conversations at a time and and looking at how to do what we do at scale and correct me if I'm wrong have have your companies worked together or explored or working together we 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 have done work with with wolf farming over the last couple of years we have a good relationship with Stuart Wolf and of course his team uh, at Wolf uh, Rick Blankenship, uh, Kevin Weiser, and we also work with some Harris Wolf growers. We did work with John Baker, uh, with Gino Giacomazzi, 
And so, so we're somehow related and we, we didn't meet in person until now, <laughs> but we were doing some work together, the companies that we were working well, pleasure to meet you. I'm, I'm excited to, to learn more. And, and the, the people you mentioned are all people I've known for many years and spend a lot of time with and respect. And if you're talking to them, uh, I'm in good company then. Well, so I wanted to start with, you know, the headline that keeps getting, it's almost like on an annual basis, you know, the, the bees are dying headline. And, you know, see these, I'm sure our listeners have seen these articles pop up in the last few years. And you know what's 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 frustrating on most of the articles, they don't really go into any depth on what they mean by that. It's almost it's almost just instilling some fear into people around. Oh my God, this is a, a bee apocalypse happening. And I think I you know first wanted to just unpack that a little bit and just explain for our listeners, well, you know the difference between farmed and wild bees, and you know which bees are we seeing, you know population declines in, and why. And so, again, for our, for our listeners, the honeybee that you you think of when you you know I think is probably what most people think of when they think of a bee is actually a agricultural species that came over from Europe in the 1600s and then made its way west all the way to California in the 19th century as we sort of moved and colonized into the west. And it's an agricultural species in that it's it's not naturally wild to the United States. You're not going to find a, a wild Western honeybee. You will find Western honeybees, of course, outside of farms and crops and growers now because they do move and they've been around for a few hundred years. Um, but they are technically an agricultural species as opposed to wild bees, which there are 4,000 species in the United States, most of which are actually solitary bees. And most people don't realize that as well. They, all bees are kind of these social creatures, but majority of wild bee species are solitary. The bumblebee is not. The bumblebee is a is a social bee, and that's probably maybe the most commonly known wild bee that you'd probably think of. So maybe I'll start with you, Matthias, because I think you, you know a lot about this topic. When when someone reads a headline and says the bees are dying, what is the extra layer of information you would like them to have in terms of which bees are dying and why? And is this something that is in steady decline annually, or is it something that's kind of fluctuating back and forth? Sure. I think you agreed kind of the answers with within your question in terms of there are multiple bee species. Usually people think about Apis mellifera, which is the scientific name of honeybees. Uh, but there are multiple bee species out there that, of course, we as humans, when we decided to remove natural habitats and grow millions of acres of monocultive crops, we were taking the homes of those solitary bees that they were building their nests somewhere to stay and then go forage uh, some flowers. So it's important to differentiate, I think, honeybees versus wild bees. And honeybees, because they're the most domesticated uh, bee species, that beekeepers have big losses. Uh, actually, 2019 is the latest data from the USDA, and there was a 40% loss on bees col- colonies, basically. So beekeepers, in average, lost 40% of their bees in 2018. Although it is not true that after losing that, they, then the next year they're having 40% less bees, because beekeepers lose bees, but they multiply their bees. So they basically are able to do what's called a split. 
So from one beehive, they can make two beehives and then they can split them again and have from two hives, have four hives. So basically it is a significant amount, of course, the amount of losses that the beekeepers are having. But if you see the trend of domestic beehives, they're not necessarily losing um, big amounts and because beekeepers can recover them. But the challenge is with regards of wild bees, where we are not able to domesticate them. So if we lose them, we lose them. And there's a lot of uh, bee species under threat of extinction. And of course, uh, not to say that the honeybee thing is not real. Of course, and there's lots of diseases like varroa mites and different things that are affecting and, uh, the bees' health. And that scientists are spending a lot of time, effort, and money trying to answer the key questions on why the bees are dying and how we can turn a 40% average loss into a 20% average loss, which of course will make beekeepers' numbers um, better. So beekeepers will have less costs and they will have less losses and they will have a more profitable business that will help them grow even more bees and that will help the ecosystem anyway. So there's different aspects to answer that question, but it's important to differentiate which type of bee species we're talking about and how are the cycles of management of, of those bees. Mike, I know as a, as a grower, you know, you're looking at a lot of data points year round to tell you how you're doing, how your ecosystem is faring, what the harvest is going to look like, what you'd expect what optimizations to make is is the and and is the farm to be the pollination service bees that that you work with is that bee mortality rate a, a data point that gets talked about a lot in the almond industry today or is it not something that is currently in that in kind of that priority level that you sort of leave that to the pollination service i was uh, looking at matthias's uh, facial reactions when you uh, as a I think you'd be surprised at the at the focus that bees have at, at any conference or any discussion that growers have. I think it is certainly on the minds of all growers. Now, not to be, I don't want to be too Pollyannish here, but I think the cost of bees correlates with the decline of bees. So instantly the reaction to a decline of bees is my cultural costs have now gone up in the farm. And if the market maybe dips on almonds, that will, will eat into profits. That's not such a bad thing, Matthias. I think people at first are incentivized by the idea of increasing costs and then the story can be told. So, you know, going back to your original question, I, Matthias hit the nail on the head. We're hearing about managed bees all the time. We're not hearing about wild pollinators. Maybe with all this, the, the silver lining is a focus that's going to be on the total ecosystem. And I'm hopeful that with programs like BeeFlow and Xerces and Pollinator Partnership and these, these types of uh, programs that focus on bee and, and pollinator health, that people realize this ecosystem is important. And if you don't want to spend $200 a hive, maybe, maybe you strengthen the hives you have and you strengthen your local ecosystem and, and change the paradigm. It- Matthias, is it fair to say for the wild pollinators, the biggest culprit is habitat loss? I think it's habitat loss and and then the use of pesticides during the middle of the day when to the farmers it's not a big deal to spray in the night. But there are some changes happening on that direction, which I could say farmers are start, starting to be more conscious 
and asking us if it makes a difference or, or not, which of course the, the, the obvious answer is yes, it makes a difference if you spray at midday when the bees are pollinating the crop. But fortunately, large crops like almonds um, have to be really almost no spray during bloom time, which is a very short time. So farmers almost do not spray or they spray fungicides before or they spray. I'm starting to see, maybe because I work with wool farming and I know wool farming is attached with Harris Wolf, but I know these guys and probably Mike as well (laughs) can agree, are starting to be more conscious about their pesticides use. You know, there's a lot of farmers spraying just in case. You know, it's, it's cheap. The pesticides sometimes are cheap. So let's spray just in case. If the, so no, why? Uh, so let's, let's be more conscious about it. And let's try to find ways to measure better uh, our presence of pests in, in the field to kind of spray when we need and do not overspray just in case. Uh, and that's because the chemical costs have been decreasing because of a large competition in, in, in of products. So I think habitat loss is number one, number two pesticides, but I'm seeing better better decision-making around pesticides. And of course, an initial trend on restoring natural habitats, as I know Harris Wolves and, and Wolf Farming are, are starting to do. Mike, can you, can you give listeners just some context of how, just how dependent almonds are on bees? Sure. Sure. From my understanding, it's the largest, the California almond bloom is the largest pollination event on the planet, single event. It takes between two and two and a half hives per acre at $200 an acre. We've talked about this before with about 1.2 million, 1.3 million acres in the ground. So a couple of million hives are used in a four to six week period. These hives are brought in from all over the country as far as Florida to, to California. These are managed by, as Matias said, apiaries that that their main business is carting these bees to different habitats and locations throughout the uh, growing cycle to to this to this almond pollination event. Without bees, we want we wouldn't have almonds. Now we we've had some research in the past twenty years that have come up with certain varieties like independents that require less bees or if no bees. Uh, UC Davis says they require no bees, but there's not a lot of farmers out there that are willing to roll the dice in their mind to completely cut out managed bees on, on the farm. So the, the simple answer is without bees, we wouldn't have almonds. And they're probably the most important or one of the most important pieces of the puzzle. You know, Mike, we did some research actually on independence variety. We we built some some huge ages on on John's Baker's farm in Hanford, and huge cages where we had bees outside, but those trees inside the cages had no bees, so just self-pollinated. And because we we found out that no one had done a, a deep scientific validation of this claim of you can grow independent trees and you can get rid of the bees. So we did this trial that was actually then published in a scientific paper that is, that is published there out in scientific reports uh, by, by Nature, which is a big, big scientific journal. And we showed that the bees were contributing to 20% more, more yields on those independence uh, trees. So that independent trees pollinated by themselves, just self-pollinated trees, and were doing pretty good yields, but, but it was, was not perfect, basically. So bees were contributing 
with a 20% increase. Uh, so it was worth it when we did an economic analysis to add some beehives to those fields and to not rely on just no bees. Although uh, there are so many bees in the valley in February that if you do not put bees, you will have some bees probably in your field anyway. <laughs> he had two highs per acre and he has a crop of non-parallel independence, non-parallel independence, non-parallel independence. So, so he was going to put bees anyway because he needed the cross-pollination between independence and non-parallel, which is for the audience, it's the name of uh, the most important variety in the almond industry. If they don't know. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, a quick comment on independence. And I've been selling independence since the very beginning. So right when I started is when these first crops of independence were coming out. And I'd say Harris Wolf probably has one of the largest handles of independence of any handler in, in the industry. The actual variety has in the beginning had a much more negative connotation to it because we were coming off some drought years. And I think that this is non-scientific, of course, but I think that the taste of the independence had enough difference that people didn't want to buy them. So here you have these guys that were, that all planted independence believe and then use less bees. And then the market didn't really show up to, to, to benefit those guys planting less bee-needing almond varieties. Now, that paradigm's shifting a bit, and I wonder what happens over the next five years when consumers realize, wait, there's an almond that requires less bees? I'll get behind that. I'd like a product with that. And, and James and I have talked about that in the past. It's let the consumers kind of be the ones that are dictating and demanding these sorts of things, and I'm hopeful for that because we have a lot of independence. Yeah, I think just devil's advocate to that, right? If the consumer thinks purely less bees. Well, I, I don't think the consumer thinks purely less bees is 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 good because I don't think the average consumer will know really anything about migratory beekeeping and and farmed bees and the the sort of the hardship that puts on bees. And, and I think the other the other thing to to watch out for in my mind is you know, I think the bigger issue that we've been talking about in this podcast so far is how do we nurture wild bees and 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 support them? And so if, if it's purely less bees, but we're not, in addition, making changes to support wild pollinators, be it what you know, supplemental crops we plant, certain practices like minimizing pesticides, things like that, we're not, you know, fully tackling the issue, right? If it's just less farmed bees. So, but I, I think you'd have the the bigger issue of trying to educate a majority of consumers on the, even the difference between farm bees and, and wild bees would be pretty tricky. <laughs> well, and, and the hard part is the, the you, you, you started with this, the information they're getting is a apocalyptic message. And there's, it's really hard to differentiate what that means or how they can contribute to, to the health of that ecosystem. They don't understand those things, so so automatically almonds are the villain. But let's not forget almonds are shelf stable; they're high in protein and, and vitamins, minerals, all these things. And there, there's there's a nuance there that we're not talking about. Yeah, and I think you know Matthias mentioned this at the top is that you know in general all forms of kind of monocrop agriculture has created environmental challenges. And that's not unique to almonds. There are a lot of crops, majority of them today, that you know farmers have found ability to scale, and scale has been the the major sort of target. And monocrop agriculture has caused 
definitely environmental challenges that we're really starting to understand today, but still not even fully, right? We don't, we don't fully understand it. How do you think about this, Mike? And, you know, is there talks within the Harris-Wolf organization around, hey, how do we, you know, how do we return to biodiversity while maintaining our yield? Well, we're, we're actually, we're, we're really at an advantage. Harris-Wolf is having a partner like Wolf Farms in the mix. Stuart Wolf has had a vision for some time long before I think it was popular to do so, maybe to create a legacy, maybe to do just do the right thing. I'm not sure. But he, he just recently had a farm meeting and brought all of his farm team in and said, let's, let's brainstorm ways we can make this better. And they're already doing that. They're already, they already have large cover crops projects and, and stuff they're planning in the hedgerow and with relationships with Pollinator Partnership and Xerces that they're, they're trying to create these habitats. But Overwhelmingly, cover crops keep coming up. How do we how do we do that? By industry, the the almond orchard is has been designed over the years to be completely barren of all other anything growing in the rows aside from the tree. That's because when the almond shook, it lays on the ground, it spread out, it dries over time, then it's swept up, and the and we don't want the sticks and the dirt and the rocks and the other things in in the almond load to go to the to plant and would affect our carbon footprint and all presents a lot of other challenges. So maybe the idea in the future is changing how you harvest almonds, but that doesn't happen overnight. And we can't, that, that adds costs and that adds complexities to your operation that, that need to be overcome in other ways. So I think the easier way and the approach that we're doing is how do we, how do we find uh, places within our own acreage or fallow land to plant cover crops or to sequester carbon through whole, whole orchard recycling? How do we find other ways in the future to, to maybe change how we harvest? But it's, I, I think that the first step in all of this has been planting native habitat to allow for a healthier ecosystem for the native pollinators. This is a two-part question that is probably first for Mike and then for Matthias. You know, I think it's very real and understandable, Mike, that making any changes to how you harvest a crop bears certain risk of unknown that is hard for any grower to accept because it is so competitive. And, you know, one season of decreased yield or adverse changes um, can really forever affect that grower with their distributors, with, you know, so many other kind of domino effects. At the same time, we know we we do need to make changes in how um, we practice agriculture, and no one's disagreeing with that. So, help for for you, Mike. Maybe help our listeners understand why it is so difficult to take on risk in this field, and the the kind of ramifications of that. And then for Matthias, you know, for what you're doing is you know you're trying to de-risk this for for folks through you know, your technology, through your practices, through your pollination service, how then are you addressing the risk issue and giving growers like Mike sort of confidence that these changes will have nothing but upside? So I'll start off with the the kind of the, the big issue is, or, is a raising or, or additional cultural costs that go with growing a crop. If the cost of your water goes up X amount, which we've seen in, in recent years because of drought conditions, and now recently it was announced that California will 
California farmers will have a 0% allocation. And so cultural costs going up there, the cost of bees going up, the cost of doing business in California ever increasing. That, that is directly correlated to, okay, we can, we can bear those things if you know, the land we own is bought at a certain amount and, and we, have, we have scale and we have a system in place to, to protect that. Where, it, where that doesn't work is when the price or cost of almonds at market is pretty close to the cost of doing business. And you can see that those things, you know, I won't really dive into it. I'll let Matias kind of run with how to get this all together. But you've seen over the last few years a decline in almond prices. And in a way, that's really good because companies can continue to innovate and use almonds and grow the market and have new foods and expose more people to the health benefits and taste of almonds. That's great. But over time, as more almonds are planted and and the cost of almonds goes down, those paradigms shift and you're seeing one or two seasons, okay, three, four, five seasons, some of these farmers aren't going to be able to bear the cost of planting and water and all the things that go with it, along with what the market price is. So currently the the, the prices are, are fairly low compared to where they have been historically. Sure. I think, I think there's a lot of, misunderstanding in general by by the ag industry not by only the almond industry but most of the crops in the world that depend on bees pollination farmers do not measure pollination so let's start by definition of measuring pollination scientists pollination ecologists have taught us to me to measure pollination by understanding how many visits a flower receives from a bee that's the way pollination is being measured as a definition by the academia, which is the visitation frequency that the plants are getting. If you ask any single farmer in Central Valley growing 1 million acres of almonds, how do you measure pollination? The answer is, I don't measure pollination. If I ask any farmer, what's your average visitation frequency? They laugh at me and they say, what? So the way farmers all over the world are dealing with pollination is just making phone calls, making a phone call. Hey, bring your bees in after bloom is over, making a phone call. Hey, take your bees out. What happens in between while the trees are blooming, it's the most important thing. Uh, It's where the bees are contributing towards the value that then the farmers harvest, towards how many pounds the farmers are harvesting. And if farmers are not able to measure the visitation frequency and understand what does it mean towards how many pounds per acre they will harvest, then it's kind of a black box and farmers are blind and they just do what everyone does, which is, for example, just just put two hives per acre uh, for almonds and you have a good crop. But that's not true. And we all know that's not true because of different reasons, because Farmers' yields are affected by multiple variables besides pollination, but also because two beehives per acre doesn't mean nothing because inside of those boxes of bees, you can have really poor quality of bees. Uh, So you're counting boxes, you're not counting bees. And then you can count the bees, but maybe the bees go somewhere else instead of going to your crop. So the way to actually measure pollination is how many visits the bees are making to your plants. 
And then you can take it to another step, which is something that I'm very concerned of. I really admire farming companies leading the transition towards regenerative agriculture, growing cover crops, hedgerows. But my question is, how are we going to know what's the ROI of that investment? So I understand that we all think that we need to grow wildflowers, but how are we going to measure the impact of that in your field? Because there can be some innovators uh, that do it first, but how are we going to have them all doing it? Uh, and the smallest farmers will think on their dollars and they will say, well, I put this money to plant these wildflowers. What's the outcome? How much money I make out of planting these wildflowers? And there's something that you can do there, which is basically measuring biodiversity. You can measure uh, on the whose visits in the flowers. You can measure which type of bee is visiting your flower. And you can start building and monitoring the ecosystem that it's starting to be developed in your farm. So I think there's the answer to your question is the way we can have more farmers transition is to this faster is by having data and measuring pollination, which no one in the farmer industry is doing. Like I have a lot of quotes, really funny quotes of farmers saying, oh, just make a focal, pull the bees there. And then they pray to God that they're going to work. They have no idea what's going on. They just drive by their trees and see a lot of bees in the plants. But no one is knowing if there are some blocks that are having less visits than the others. And that is meaning why the block was underperforming besides the other one. Everyone is just putting two hives per acre just randomly, and that's it. So we're trying to bring some science and data towards how pollination should be addressed and helping farmers letting them know, hey, maybe you need less bees per acre. So you can save on your pollination expenses per acre, or maybe you need to do other things uh, to maximize your yields based off on the age of the tree, based on the varieties you're growing. So there's a lot of different things that could be addressed that could make this much more efficient besides just dropping two boxes of bees per acre. And that's it. I, I'm, I'm one of those guys who believe that um, you will be able to reduce by half easily so one high per acre of honeybees, uh, if you have a good amount of wild pollinators, but that's some. There's some scientific papers, and what I said just what I just said is just a thought. It's not a fact, or I don't have any data to validate that. But there are some scientific papers showing that when there was some studies where they introduced some some blue orchard bees into some fields, they saw the honeybees working harder because they noticed that there were other pollinators looking for the same resources. So they were actually moving more and they were actually cross-pollinating more, which is another very interesting topic uh, that is not being addressed, which is, uh, you know, honeybees. And we actually are going to publish hopefully soon a scientific paper around this where we basically shown that honeybees have a preference to fly uh, into a crop during the same canopy. So basically jump from one tree to the other on the same tree, on the same rows of trees. And that's important for the almond industry because you don't want that to happen. You want the bees to cross-pollinate, to jump from one variety to the other because the flowers need pollen from the other variety, not from the same row, basically. So what we uh, studied was that the bees are actually flying on the same canopy. And this is a complementary to some studies that have shown that introducing wild pollinators uh, are making uh, the bees jump more 
between one road to the other because they kind of bother themselves. So there's a honeybee there, then a, a blue orchard bee comes, and then the honeybee jumps to the other row. And that's actually incentivizing cross-pollination. So there's a lot to study about bees' behavior in the fields and how they fly and how we can optimize that cross-pollination, which is what farmers need. Is there any evidence, Matthias, that there is also conflict between wild, native, and farmed bees? I think that anything in excess, probably in life, right? Anything in excess is, is bad. <laughs> so just just putting too many bees in just one month, of course, takes the opportunity for other wild bees to have food because there are bees coming from all over the U.S. to California just to stay one month uh, and they take all of the resources for the wild pollinators. So I think, of course, that's not um, positive, although I probably think it's not that the worst thing that honeybees do to wild bees, but it's also bringing bees from all over the U.S. uh, spread uh, of diseases uh, and diseases uh, from honeybees go into wild bees and that's affecting them as well. So I think there should be many more security issues related to bringing insects into California. And I think California is very vague in terms of uh, it's really easy to move bees into California. There, 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 should, there should be many more uh, restrictions the main threat of, of, of honeybees in, in the U.S. is varroa mites. And everyone knows that is the main point of infection because your bees can be healthy, but maybe there's a neighbor in another almond field that has their honeybees infested with varroa mites. So your own bees that were healthy, they get infested because they had a neighbor that had infested bees so that that's going to affect wild bees as well and so there's it is a complicated topic it's not easy what we're talking about but but i think everything in excess is not positive so i hope there's kind of a balance where ultimately almond farmers and other farmers uh, start to think about a balance between honeybees because they're needed and they're really good pollinators and they have a lot of advantages uh, on their socialism than solitary bees and so it is important to understand that we should aim all for a balance where beekeepers are needed and of course uh, people trying to promote natural habitats are needed as well. Mike, in terms of the almond industry and the wild pollinators and native pollinators, it and correct me if this is an unfair characterization, it doesn't seem from what I've read there's a lot of discussion around native pollinators. It almost seems like, you know, because there's been such a heavy reliance on bringing in um, external farmed bees for so long that, and and because there's other issues, right? Almond growers are facing, particularly on the water issue, that this hasn't been sort of a hot topic, or there there isn't a lot of there aren't a lot of ways or practices right now to monitor native species, or pollinators to understand where they are. It's sort of I've seen I've seen quotes from certain almond farmers, not within your company, but other ones that said. Well, the California climate in the valley just doesn't support wild pollinators very well. So, you know, there's really there's really no no avenue there. We have to continue to bring in external bees to keep our our harvest up. 
what is the the discussion and dialogue within the almond industry around wild pollinators? And there is there, you know, is it at a place where people do not believe that there is an avenue to rely more on native bees, or or is you know, or is it that they would like that to exist? They just don't know how to make that viable. I think it's a matter of education or awareness. I, I think you're looking at these guys uh, a lot and the, these uh, growers have been doing this for many, many years. And I think Matias hit the nail on the head. They don't know exactly why it works, but they know it works. Uh, and they know if they don't do it, uh, they're going to have problems. And I think it's, I think it's a matter of awareness. And I, and I, uh, just, I think it was today, the Pollinator Partnership had released its California Pollination or Pollinator Coalition. And it's it's dragging in a lot of these really well-known farming conglomerates, operations, organizations, and they're all getting together and having this conversation and they're all realizing the importance of stronger ecosystems. I don't know. I don't know what has happened, and I say it since COVID, but there's been this almost awakening. It feels like about the importance of sustainability in farming, and it, it not one day goes by that I don't have a sustainability conversation with someone. I had one this morning on another topic. It's it's so important, seemingly today, much more important today than it was even 12 months ago. So. And I started by saying awareness. I, I think we will continue to see people realizing that a stronger natural ecosystems will only help to support almond pollination. Something that maybe in the past they just didn't realize because of tradition. But I think the conversations are happening now in a major way. And, and Harris Wolf, Wolf Farming, Harris Farming, they're all really hopeful that, and, and they're putting large bets out on this. And you know, Stuart, to a point, Matthias made a couple of questions. Stuart made huge investments into Xerxes long before anybody was even looking at these things. And it was a big amount of money, hoping that these were the right things to do. Now, we were encouraged by one of our large customers that maybe saw the writing on the wall, maybe thought it was important. Could you just uh, explain, sorry, explain to listeners what Xerxes is? Yeah, yeah. So, so Xerxes and Pollinator Partnership are both organizations that support pollinator health. And both of those have certification programs which focus on how farmers interact with native pollinators. And that, and that certification process is quite stringent, costs a ton of money. There's a lot of time associated with it. There's methodologies on how farmers approach using pesticides and and the planting of, of native habitats within hedgerows to support the health of those uh, pollinators. And these types of programs, I think, are wildly important. The realization through consumer packaged goods companies that, that it's important and the incentivization. Harris Wolf incentivizes our growers to be part of those programs. And when we directly subsidize their participation, awareness will grow. And that's our focus. Would you say across the almond industry that there is kind of uh, unanimous or near unanimous recognition that long-term continued over-reliance on farmed bees is not sustainable? Would you say the industry has rec- like has recognized that 
And even if they don't have the solutions for it yet, they've at least recognized it. Or is that still, would that statement be challenged? I don't want to claim more wokeness than the next farmer or farming operation or group or processor. We're really focusing on it. I think others are focusing on other things. I think everybody knows the importance of bees. I don't think everyone contextualizes that actions that they take are doing what needs to be done to protect those bees. I think we all have a different hierarchy of needs and, and I'm thankful that I work for an organization that is focused on it. Matthias might be better at answering this question than I am because he's he's an outside party looking into our industry. I think there are there are exceptions. Uh, I think it is a challenge to have that the definition made by the entire industry. But I can say by working, and it's a coincidence. I, I didn't know Mike, but I know Harris Wolf, Wolf Farming. They're one of the leaders in the space, and they bet early in the days. And I completely agree, and I've seen it firsthand. So I completely validate what he's saying. And I met with other farming companies that, of course, they don't care as much as as, as Mike and, and his team uh, does. And it's it's a completely fact. And you, you can see it with the, with the actions, basically, because everyone can speak about it. But who has the most amount of acres of probably hedgerows and, 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 and cover crops uh, in the valley. Harris Wolf. Uh, so uh, it's, it's just facts. So I, I hope there's kind of a competition between farming companies to go to the most amount of acres. And I hope also, I think there's, there's, a, there's some comments that, that Mike made that I have actually some questions about it because I think there's a significant role where that, that, that large CPGs make, right? Uh, which are the customers of Harris Wolf which are the ones that buy the almonds for the almond milk or for the cereal bars. And I think those companies are, are also making smart moves towards uh, this direction. I've seen an article published by Kind saying we are going to buy only friendly almonds. So that's a big statement and a big, big announcement telling like all of farmers saying, if you want to sell almonds to Kind, uh, you will have to, to do friendly farming so i think cpgs play a significant role and who are customers of cpgs us as consumers in the grocery stores which decide with our dollars so i think the more we as society start understanding the importance of bee friendly farming and that will make cpgs get motivated and excited about it and cpgs will have to motivate and get farmers excited back in the supply chain. So I think it's also our responsibility we as, as consumers play. And we will start seeing, I, I, I can envision, products in the grocery store with the label be friendly. It's already happening in some products. And so I think and I hope we are smart enough as consumers to to buy food that was produced under, under these standards because that will help farmers uh, adopt these practices easier. There's the last couple of questions. So in California, there's a lot of debate going on right now about the classification of bumblebees on whether or not they should be classified as a threatened species or not. Particularly, I think, four subspecies of bumblebees. So I should also say bumblebee 
there's a, a variety of bumblebees. There's not just one bumblebee. And there's pretty good, you know, there, there's sound arguments on both sides, right, of this. Those that are for the classification believe that it is a tool to continue to incentivize growers in California to adopt practices to, you know, sustain and support bumblebees. And those that do not support the classification say, like, look, there's no discernible way to really know the population size of an insect like a bumblebee. We know things like wolves that have GPS collars and how their populations change. And we don't really know if the bumblebee, how many bumblebees are out there. And without that precise knowledge, it's not really, it's not fair necessarily to put this classification on it and force growers to adopt practices accordingly. I've talked about this with both of you, but just for the purpose sake of our listeners, can you let us know where you stand on that debate? And again, this is not about, I, I think this is one of those debates where there's not a clear right or wrong. There's valid positions on both sides, but I'm just curious on where you stand on that. I can say from my opinion, if of course, if there's a species that is endangered, uh, we need to take care of them. Uh, and it's a serious fact. Uh, when we lose them, we lose them. <laughs> so it's important to really be conscious about it. I also think there's a lot of misinformation about uh, the, the topic uh, in general. Of course, I promote uh, and I hope uh, people can understand this and can actually use bumblebees to pollinate their crops as well. There are companies in the world, mainly Copert and Biobest, which are, their headquarters are in Europe, but they have large presence in the U.S., that they've been pollinating, helping farmers pollinate their crops with bumblebees for long amount of years. So recently, actually, there was one bumblebee species, uh, Bumbles bosniosiski, which is the scientific name, that has been approved in 2020 by the EPA to be used in California. Although there are some, some ecologists and scientists that are being concerned about the use of these commercially um, grown bumblebees because they claim that they could have uh, some diseases. And these diseases, again, can be spread into the native bumblebees or the ones that are out there, and, and this could make them extinct. So I know, for example, the Xerxes Society uh, do not allow you to be a Be Better certified farmer if you commercially um, commercially bumblebees, which is... In my opinion, not that positive, but I think there's there's still a lot of lack of information there, and so they're a bit of a little bit of strict on, on that side. But I think overall, bumblebees are are something that we need to take care of. And any any time that a serious scientific community or institution shares with us that there's a species, any species that could potentially be, be extinct, we all need to take care of that and do whatever we can to avoid that. Because when we lose it, we we lose it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm aligned with, with that. My concern lies in regulation or over-regulation of how you, how you then approach that species that exists around all these other species that either are brought in or are native to the, to the area. So my bigger concern is you start to handcuff how farmers are planting crops or interacting with their crop. You change... Uh, you change how how you end up getting your your end product, and that that worries me because it, it creates a further divide between 
I don't know, one side or the other on on it being an issue that's either, <laughs> I'm drawing a line here, but it's either a, a left issue or a right issue and you fall somewhere in between the middle and maybe you find a nice fix for it. But when you put a regulation like endangered species on it, my fear is always that you're going to shut down the opinions of maybe traditional farmers to the idea of conserving these really important species with it being coming a political issue or becoming something that's that's just that's a reason to fight about. I it's hard to contextualize this because my opinions have changed a bit over since since you asked me the question originally. I just I feel like man, it is really important to protect these, but I just don't know the right way to do it. And I and I, I go back to what I said before. It's awareness. I didn't really know the issue that was around it or why it's particularly the bumblebee. Originally, when I heard this, I thought it was the honeybee that they were they were making an endangered species, and then that was why my original answer was just kind of whoa, whoa, whoa. I was like attacking <laughs> when I heard this, but I just think awareness is is a bigger thing in this issue that, and it goes back to all of this. Everybody just needs to know more. Yeah, and and, and in the example of, for example, water and almonds, right? Like, and there's a lot of people that say, oh, no, almonds take a lot of water. So almonds are, are devils. Almond farmers are like devils. And no, that's not true. Like, and I think everything in excess is bad, as I was telling before. Like the, the conscious use of water, precise irrigation systems uh, could, of course, save a lot of water that farmers are using. But we still need to produce almonds to feed the population that is increasing in the world. And almonds are a very healthy uh, food, right? So I think everything in excess is, is bad and going to one extreme or the other is not good. I think I agree with Mike. There's a need to learn more. There's a need to uh, make questions and really try to get the answers of those questions. And yeah, and do not judge without having uh, certainties because farmers hustle a lot <laughs> and they they do a lot of work to to put an almond in in a shelf and they are not valued as they as they as they should sometimes yeah there's also a large issue for me personally of you know i i, I kind of get frustrated when people don't start thinking about protecting a species till it's classified as endangered and you know the the best i forget through the I'm drawing a blank on her name. There's a woman, oh, I can't believe I'm blank on her name. She she's one of the most she she originally called out, she was part of the National Audubon Society and she was famous for calling it out back in the teens and tw- teens and 20s of the 20th century. Man, I can't believe I think can't think of her name right now. But she has a famous quote where she says, "The best way to protect endangered species is to protect them before they're endangered." Because once they're actually endangered, it becomes infinitely more challenging. One of the main reasons is, you know, you, you, you lack the, the volume to, to reproduce safely and reproduce productively because, you know, pe- all species need genetic diversity to thrive and to survive. And then you're even more reliant on human control and human uh, input at that stage when, when they truly are endangered. So I think in general, you know, we should be protecting wild pollinators regardless of their classification. We shouldn't need that to be an issue. And unfortunately, though, I think a lot of people don't think of across the board, an animal being in need until it's endangered. 
And it's sort of like saying like, what if we never cared about our health until we have cancer and then we start eating right? You know what I mean? And then we start exercising. All right. Last question. And maybe I'll start with, with Mike on this one and go to Matias because this is sort of, this question is going to be sort of, sort of Matias's modus operandi. In your mind, what do pollination services look like in 10 years? I think, and I don't want to steal Matias's answer or anything, but I think uh, reduced hives per acre due to better quality hives and a more ecologically diverse almond ranch and habitat that favors native pollinators. I would agree with that 100%. I will add measuring and monitoring pollination during bloom because each farm has unique conditions surrounding it. So we need to understand and consider almost each farm as a different piece. Uh, It's not the same growing almonds in Maricopa, which is in the southern part of the Central Valley, to grow in Fresno or in Sacramento. Although they're very similar climates, they have different conditions. Uh, So I think measuring and understanding uh, what's the best strategy to address uh, each region, each farm, should be very important towards having the most efficient in terms of resource use and, of course, outcome impact in yields to farmers strategy that, that a farmer needs. So pollination services would be much more than just dropping beehives and praying that they're going to work. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. We learned the difference between farmed and wild pollinators, why an over-reliance on farm pollinators possesses environmental challenges, how we need more growers to start measuring pollination, why it has been challenging for growers to rely on wild pollinators, and what the future of pollination services might look like. If you want to support bees of all kinds, the best thing you can do is plant crops and flowers they love. Things like lavender, foxglove, sunflowers, oregano, rosemary, veronica, honeywort, chives. There's a big list. We'll actually link to it in the podcast description. And whether you're just putting a couple flowers on an apartment patio or have your own garden, in your backyard, every little bit helps. The other thing you can do, just as important, is buy organic. Do not support any farmers or any growers that are using pesticides. The other thing you can do is just watch what you buy. Try to avoid any products that use pesticides, because those are incredibly dangerous for both farmed and wild pollinators. All right, that's it for us today. Have a good one. Till next time on Animalia.